The scripture lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 49. The focus of our study will be verses 13 to 21, but I'll begin the reading in verse 1, reading through verse 27. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you. By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the mountains." up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for the gospel that is found here in Genesis 49. And may you give us ears to hear it this day, hearts that understand and perceive it, and eyes that see Christ all the more clearly, and the calling to which you would have us 
to follow you and to pursue in faithfulness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is the meaning behind the popular English nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? I'm guessing many of you know it by heart. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. The Humpty Dumpty rhyme first appeared in print in Samuel Arnold's Juvenile Amusement, published in 1797, though the third line was slightly different, four score men and four score more. Some contend that it's a riddle and that Humpty is an egg and he fell off the wall and broke, and once you break an egg, there's nothing you can do about it. Humpty Dumpty's portrayal as an egg may have been perpetuated by Lewis Carroll's uh, Through the Looking Glass, in which he appears, Humpty that is, as a fussily exacting egghead who corrects Alice's grammar and discusses the value and meaning of words. Another theory is that Humpty is actually a reference to Richard III, who was believed to have had a hunched back on account of severe scoliosis. His brutal 26-month reign ended with his death in the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. In this speculative version, King Richard uh, III, III's horse was supposedly called Wall, off which he fell during the battle. He was bludgeoned so severely that his men could not save him, becoming the last king to die in battle. In his play, uh, Shakespeare refers to Richard III as a poisonous, bump-backed toad. Another theory is that Humpty Dumpty refers to a cannon in Colchester, England, during the town's siege in 1648. The town had a majestic castle and several churches encircled by a protective wall. A large and heavy cannon, nicknamed Humpty Dumpty, was strategically placed atop St. Mary's as the wall church to defend the city and manned by one-eyed Jack Thompson. The top of the church tower was hit by the enemy, causing the cannon to tumble to the ground where it shattered and could not be put back together again. Now, this theory has been disproved, however, and was apparently a spoof published by Oxford in 1956. In some Mother Goose publications of nursery rhymes, Humpty is portrayed as a fat boy, and allusions to this story are found in other literary works, such as All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, which was made into a movie in 2006. Of course, it could have another meaning entirely. And one of the burning unresolved questions I have is how could horses help put Humpty back together again anyway? Also, who is the king mentioned? Maybe that gives more credence to the Richard III theory. I suppose we may never know the original meaning of the nursery rhyme, but I want to contend that we can rightly appropriate the phrase all the king's men as a description of our calling as the church as Christians in this world. As priest and king, Jesus has taken his rightful place, seated upon his throne. From thence he rules over all. According to Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus reigns in heaven until all his enemies have been defeated. Jesus hasn't left the earth to get a head start because things are going to get so much worse on the earth. So he's escaping to heaven and we should want to do that too. Now, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus is victorious now. He's victorious today. And even though it's a slow process, he's about his business of bringing all things under his rule and reign through the church. And Christ's present victorious position informs our expectations about the future and should be of great encouragement to us in the present. 
For one, we know that Jesus is going to come back, even as the two angels tell the disciples in Acts 1. He will ultimately set things right at his second coming. And even more, we can take great hope in knowing that Jesus is governing the course of the world for the sake of his kingdom upon the earth. The rise and fall of nations and governments and their various leaders are all the evidence of his rule as the king of kings, as the emperor of the world. But we also need to understand Christ's ascension is our ascension. His entrance into the Father's throne room is our entrance. His access is now our access. And how do we know this to be true? Well, because Paul says we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and our lives are hid with God in Christ in the heavens. See, the, the ascension is good news because heaven and earth are no longer barred from one another. And Paul can say all of this because we are in union with Christ. We are in him. He is the head and we are the body. We as the church are not a decapitated body and Jesus is not a bodiless head. I think we unwittingly tend to think this way for one reason or another, but we shouldn't. Yes, Jesus is in heaven, but he is not disconnected from us, nor we from him. In fact, the king is working through his body to continue to effectuate the changes upon the earth that he decrees from his throne. He is bringing about the hallowing of the Father's name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will on earth as it is in heaven. But he's not doing that in a vacuum or by lightning zaps from heaven, but through men, women, and children who have been given life by the Holy Spirit. He's accomplishing it through those who are marked out as his countrymen, as the king's men, who kneel before their king and are commissioned in his majestic name to serve him. We are a kingly people because of our union, our relationship to the king. And there's something of that going on here in Genesis 49, verses 13 to 21, as we continue our study of Jacob's blessings upon his sons. Last week, we considered the blessings bestowed upon Judah and the various ways in which the kingly line that would come from him was repeated, was represented and fulfilled, while also recognizing there's a sense in which all of Israel is being set forth as a nation of kings. That's further evidence in the blessings given to these five sons even as some of the imagery that we'll notice corresponds to what Judah just spoke, uh, what Jacob just spoke to Judah. And while commentators debate why, Jake, why Jacob doesn't follow the birth order for the giving of the blessings here, a quick look at the structure for these verses provides a partial answer. As we noted, the chiastic structure of the entirety of the chapter a few weeks ago, notice the structure of these verses and the point of emphasis the text seems to be making. You can see this in the sermon notes on the back page of the liturgy. Zebulun, dominion of the sea, Issachar, the king's beast of burden, Dan, serpent striking the heels, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh, in the center, and then Gad, raiding at the heels, Asher, the king's food, and then Naphtali, dominion of the land. When the thematic and literary structure is set forth, when the poetic aspect of the text is examined, then the structure emerges rather neatly, also giving us further insight as how to interpret Jacob's words. And basically what we have here are the kingly duties of these five brothers. So let's begin to look at some of the details of Jacob's prophetic poem. He speaks to Zebulun in verse 13, whose name means honored one. Even as Leah declared at his birth, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. 
So she called his name Zebulun. And we're told three things about him. He'll dwell at the shore of the sea. He'll be a haven for ships and his border shall be Sidon. Now, something that's a bit puzzling is that the territory that Zebulun would inherit was actually landlocked in the northern part of Canaan. So how can he do all of these things that are described of him? Well, the best way to take it is that Jacob is speaking in symbolic poetic language. Over and over again, the nations are equated with the sea and ocean and water. Psalm 65, 7, the seas and waves are associated with the peoples, with the Gentile nations. Isaiah uses this imagery and the whole story of Jonah is predicated on this imagery. Even more, Jesus tells the disciples in Mark 11, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What's he talking about? Often this is understood to mean that if they really had faith, they could move a mountain. Of course, then you wonder why Jesus would tell them to move a mountain in the first place. What good would that really do? Well, Jesus isn't talking about a literal mountain, such as Mount Everest. And he's not talking about an actual sea. Now, he says, this mountain. What mountain is that? The temple, which Jesus just cleansed in the previous section of Mark's story. And what is the sea? The Gentiles, specifically the Roman army that's going to overrun the temple in AD 70. The disciples are to pray and believe that the temple mount will be thrown into the sea of the Gentiles, the Roman army. So for Zebulun to dwell at the shore of the sea is for him to live near Gentiles, which he will. And to be a haven for ships means he's a friend to Gentiles. Also true, even as the mention of Sidon, the chief city of Phoenicia, further indicates. Sidon actually was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as was the city of Tyre, both of which had a long history with the people of Israel. So Zebulun will be the friend of Gentiles who have dominion over the sea. He'll exercise a measure of rule, even as Judah will over Israel. And one further point of interest, the city of Nazareth, which Jesus was from, where Jesus was from, was located in Zebulun. Of course, it was called Galilee in Jesus' day. But what's something that Galilee of the Gentiles was famous for? Fishing. Jesus' first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were all Galilean fishermen. And so Jesus is not only the greater Judah, but also the greater Zebulun. Jesus was from the line of Judah and on the ancestral side, but from, well, from Zebulun on the geographical side, we might say. Isaiah 9.1 puts it succinctly. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Matthew quotes this text in chapter 4 of his gospel when Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee and then immediately recounts the calling of the first disciples, as just mentioned. So Zebulun would take dominion of the sea, a calling initially pictured in God's command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to have dominion over the fish of the sea. And later, uh, evidence in Jesus' calling of his disciples to be fishers of men. 
And notice the Bible's logic and how it moves forward to us in our day. Jesus is God's promised king. If Jesus is God's promised king, that means it is time for the Gentiles to enjoy the blessing of Abraham with Israel. Therefore, we have a mission to go and proclaim the kingship of Jesus to the Gentiles. Well, next in verses 14 to 15, we hear the blessing upon Issachar, whose name means man of hire. And do well to remember that he's the son that was born to Leah after she hired Jacob, which we read about in Genesis 30. And notice the language and how the imagery goes from a crouching animal to what kind of man Issachar would, would be. A, a similar progression to what we heard in the blessing to Judah, which makes for another kingly connection here. So what kind of animal is Issachar compared to? Well, a strong donkey. Donkeys were also mentioned in relation to Judah. And he crouches between the saddlebags. That's probably the best reading there and makes the most sense of the text. So Issachar is a strong donkey. And don't forget that donkeys are kingly beasts. So Issachar will be able to support Judah, the king. The fact that he crouches seems to indicate that he submits to Judah's rule, that he works for and with him. As Judah is the crouching lion, Issachar is the crouching donkey which is a compliment and not an insult. And what does Jacob say of him in verse 15? He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. Now, what does that remind us of? Seeing and then something, saying, uh, saying something that's good. Well, the first week of creation, when God saw what he made and pronounced it good. Issachar sees, he makes a judgment with his eyes, the rest, uh, the rest place was good. The land was pleasant, probably pointing forward to the promised land, the land in which Judah's vine is planted. And seeing this, what does Issachar do? He bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Now, the majority opinion on what's being described is that Issachar is enslaved, that this is some, uh, describing something negative. And some of the language used here can certainly mean that and does so in other places in the Bible. However, even as we know from Joseph's enslavement of Egypt, being the slave, being a servant to a gracious king, isn't necessarily a bad thing and can be a prosperous position to hold. And I'm inclined to read Jacob's words about Issachar more along these lines. It can also mean willing to, to labor hard, which simply means that Issachar is a hard worker. Working hard is not a curse. And hard work and having a place to work hard is a great blessing. The picture seems to be here that Issachar recognizes his gifts and he excels at working hard and he's happy and willing to subservice himself to Judah to work hard for the king and by laboring hard for the king, he's advancing the king's work and the kingdom itself. Again, this, this is prophetic poetry and could have more than one meaning and could even be pointing forward to the burdensome prosperity Israel would know under Solomon even as detailed in 1 Kings 12 and even as Samuel warned the people before they ever had a king in 1 Samuel 8. But the greater king to come, the descendant of Judah and Solomon, what does he offer? Come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Jacob speaks next to Dan in verses 16 to 18, whose name means judge. He was born to Rachel through her serv servant Bilhah, and Rachel declared, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. 
Therefore, she called his name Dan. So Jacob's making a play on words here. But understand that the judges were deliverers. They were saviors before the time of the monarchy in Israel. There's a whole book of the Bible named for them, recounting their exploits and stories. So Dan will have a place among the tribes of Israel, and even a leadership position of sorts, passing judgments, making decisions, and delivering the innocent and oppressed. And which famous judge came from Dan? Samson. And Jacob's words seem to be a prophecy about him. Verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way. Now, we naturally think this is not a compliment, that he's really a devil in disguise. Now, it's true that Dan will later become apostate, and his name is dropped from the list of tribes in the book of Revelation, as we read in chapter 7 of that book. So the fact that he's compared to a serpent can have negative connotations. However, the serpent is also described as wise in Genesis 3, and Jesus tells the disciples to be wise as serpents. And how does Samson exercise wisdom? Well, he tells the Philistines riddles in order to defeat them. A serpent in a path or a horned viper on the way who can cause a horse to rear throwing its rider off conveys the idea of a a sneak attack. The enemy is unsuspecting, which also matches Samson's activities in his warfare against the Philistines. Then Jacob declares in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. Again, this too can refer to Samson, even as he was a savior of Israel. In Judges 13, the angel of Yahweh declared to Manoah and his wife, Samson's parents, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But remember that Genesis 49:18 is not only central to the to the, to the section that we're studying this morning, but also to the entire chapter, to all of Jacob's blessings upon his sons. So this declaration of waiting on Yahweh's salvation has application for, for all of Israel. It's central to their life as a people, even as Jacob is making a declaration of faith founded upon God's promises to him and to his seed. You see, Jesus isn't just the new Judah, but the whole new Israel. He's not only a greater Judah, but also a greater Dan, and even a greater Samson. And yes, there are a number of things that Samson does that cause us to raise our eyebrows. And yes, John the Baptist will level a charge against the Pharisees that they are a brood of vipers. An attack against Jesus will come from within Israel. But even through the misuse and abuse of their privilege of rule, God is working out his plan of deliverance. Well, next comes Gad in verse 19, whose name means fortune. And, and Jacob is employing a wordplay that's lost a little bit in the English translations. The word for raid or raider has the same consonants as Gad, the, the G and the D. One translator cleverly uses goad in an attempt to preserve the sound of it. The goader will goad Gad, but he shall goad at their heels. The ESV reads, the raider shall raid Gad. Uh, Gad's name means fortune. And a raider is a fortune seeker, we might say. But then notice the, the similar imagery used here that matches Dan, at the heels. Apparently Gad will fight in a similar way as Dan. But the mention of the heel for Dan and Gad also connects them to Jacob, who was clinging at Esau's heel at their birth. Even more, Gad would be located on the east side of the Jordan, 
They'd be on the frontier at the entrance to the land and served as protectors and guardians. And Gad eventually becomes a military power in Israel. Next comes Asher in verse 20. His name means happiness. And he parallels Issachar in our proposed structure. He also serves the king in producing rich bread and royal delicacies. And what does this indicate? But dominion taken over the land and a certain measure of wealth and prosperity. See, what's pictured here isn't just the bear's form of bread, but rich bread and foods that you'd expect to find produced for a king. Feeding the king is certainly an important position. Yes, a position of service, but important nonetheless. Perhaps we could contend that Asher will be the chief baker in Israel. And finally, that brings us to Naphtali in verse 21, whose name means struggle. Rachel named him this because she viewed herself as struggling, as wrestling with Leah and prevailed. Of course, this theme of wrestling is descriptive of Jacob's entire life. But here Jacob declares that struggle, Naphtali, is a doe let loose or is a free running doe. Again, this is poetry and the next line is even more challenging. But a free running doe may be a veiled reference to Rachel. But in the rest of scripture, deer are sure footed creatures that scale mountains. They're land animals, which contrasts with all the references to Zebulun and the sea. So in the first part of the verse, there's a feminine reference, the doe. But then Jacob says, he gives birth or he bears, which is a way of referring to the tribe uh, producing, of Naphtali producing. And again, this is poetry, so the mixing of the metaphors is more allowable. But what do they produce? The ESV reads beautiful fawns. Another suggested translation is beautiful sheep. Maybe we can think of it this way. Joseph and Benjamin are beautiful sheep from Rachel, the ewe. That's what her name means. She's a ewe, but she's also a doe. Making Natalie a doe means making the sheep fawns. However, the New King James seems to be closer to the literal meaning as it reads beautiful words. In other words, Natalie gives birth to beautiful speech. If that's the right translation, then what does it mean? Well, again, we're dealing with poetry, and there may be some intentional ambiguity here as to how we're supposed to take this. But consider, words are also offspring. They are the offspring of our lips, and they should be beautiful. Jesus is both the Word of God and the Lamb of God. Jesus is the true Naphtali or the son of Naphtali, the free-running doe of Eve and Rachel. He is the sheep or fawn, and he's also the beautiful words. The ambiguity, ambiguity, the ambiguity is deliberate. So Naphtali, who's associated in the prophecy with Zebulun, has the word come out of it. And remember earlier that is from the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, that Jesus the word comes. He is the beautiful word that comes from the land of Naphtali. And it's through this word that kingly dominion will not only come over the sea but also the land. Well, as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, as those who are called to kingly service, what are some further principles for our faith that emerge from the text? Well, let's take them by pairing up the corresponding blessings spoken. First, Zebulun and Naphtali direct us to remember that we have a mission to the ends of the earth for the taking of dominion over all the earth and especially in the meshes of the gospel that Jesus is the king, that he rules over all. 
Still more, the gospel that we declare, the message that we deliver is beautiful speech and should be comprised of beautiful words. Ours is the message of Isaiah 52, even as Paul cites in Romans 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, and who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And as a people who have a a beautiful message to declare, then that means that our words, that the offspring of our lips should be beautiful, even in our daily speech. Our words to one another, your words to your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, should not be ugly, disrespectful, causing dissension or anger, but beautiful, gracious, kind, and peaceful. And sometimes this is challenging, especially when we're tired, frustrated, or irritated. But in a culture and society that's saturated with base, even grotesque words, then we need to be all the more set apart, all the more holy in what we say and how we say it. And teenagers, particularly young men, and maybe young women now, uh, more than would have been the case 30 or 40 years ago, guard yourselves against thinking that profanity is fashionable. That just because you're older, that's an automatic pass that you can cuss like a sailor. You know, hold one another accountable and how you speak to one another and demonstrate speech that is befitting of those in service to the king. And beautiful speech can even be in the the literature that we produce as believers, in what we produce, in what we say through various means. That's another application of this principle. Second, Issachar and Asher set before us the necessity of hard work for the sake of the king and his kingdom and that we have different duties to perform in service to Jesus. You know, manual laborers are needed and there's no shame in that kind of work and service so long as it's done unto the Lord. You know, there are some who contend that everyone should be an independent business owner working for himself or herself, and that's the true biblical pattern. But that's simply not the case. Not everyone has the same set of gifts, and there are those who are far more prosperous when given a structured setting for their work, when their tasks are clearly laid out before them than they would be otherwise. It's also unrealistic because if everyone was their own boss, then how could the business expand without employees? And also we see in Asher one who was given to creating finer things, intricate and detailed things. He wasn't called to make the barest form of things, but food that was rich and delicious, new recipes, exotic combinations, imaginative things. And sometimes we do well to remember that God is not a minimalist. Everything shouldn't be boiled down to necessity. You know, if life was meant to only be lived that way, then there'd be no place for technology and advancement in culture and society. And that's completely contrary to what we've been called to do. Even the original mandate given to Adam and Eve to rule and subdue the earth. You know, do you need an iPhone or an iPad or TV or video games? Do you need donuts or desserts or various spices for your foods? Do you need wine or sweet tea or coffee? Well, yes, coffee is a necessity, but it still takes technology to make it. See, technology is part of taking dominion. And as Christians, we should be seeking to pave the way for continued advancement in all fields of study and life and and really all that we see around us is the fruit of the gospel of the further advancement of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. Third, in Dan and Gad, we are reminded to be wise as serpents and to be ready for battle. 
We're to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But also there's a warning here not to abuse the privileges that we've been given. As mentioned earlier, Dan eventually proves to be apostate. And he didn't continue on in faith in the blessings bestowed upon him. Hints of this are given in the book of Judges, uh, as Dan refuses to drive out the Canaanites from the land in Judges 1. And at the end of Judges, Dan is engaged in the worship of idols. You might also remember that Jeroboam sets up one of his idolatrous shrines for false worship in Dan. And after Israel returns from the Babylonian exile, Dan has been expunged from Israel's history. Dan lost sight of the real enemy and ended up attacking his own people. And we do well to remember who the real enemies are. Uh, otherwise, we end up turning and attacking one another. You know, don't take aim at allies, those whose guns are pointed in the right direction. You know, the battle is fierce enough right now. And sure, we can have our intramural debates, but, but let's not confuse that with fighting with the real enemies. Fourth and finally, we pray with Jacob, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Yes, Jesus, our King, has come, and we celebrate the reality of His resurrection and the deliverance He accomplished for His people, even as His ascension is the capstone of the resurrection and of our Easter celebrations. And yes, we're just at the beginning of the Lenten season. But remember that our Lord's Day celebrations aren't part of that, in a sense. And just as we rehearse the story of creation, our redemption through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection... His ascension and His taking His rightful place upon the throne of God as the King of kings and Lord of lords, that reality and message also includes an expectation that the King will return, that Jesus will come to the earth a second time. Faith will become sight. Heaven and earth will be consummately joined at the last. The dead shall be raised. Our bodies will be redeemed. Everything that's been broken will be ultimately put back together again. But until then, there's the king's work to be done. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the marvelous and beautiful way in which the scriptures are written and how you would impress the truth of the gospel and the truth of your word upon us. And so may... Your word take deep root in our lives this day that it might bear fruit unto your glory for the building up of your church and for the furtherance of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Help us and strengthen us to these ends in our respective callings, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.